invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So you're turning there, I'd like to uh, give a brief context again to where we're at in uh, Philippians chapter 1. As you recall, these last couple of weeks, Paul has been giving us some lessons on suffering. And he shared his own mindset on suffering in a, in a number of different realms. First, it was circumstantial. He's in prison. Then it was affliction from others. And lastly, last week, it was his perspective on possible death. And he shared his mindset with us in order to give us an example to emulate when we face difficult hardships in this life. I ended last week by giving that illustration of like a math teacher. It's like any good teacher doesn't just give their students the answer, but shows them how to arrive at the right answer. So to Paul, being a master teacher, is wanting to teach us how to arrive at the right conclusions by giving us his own example. You'll notice here in our passage this evening, Paul is directly addressing the Philippians now for the first time. It's the first commander imperative in our book. He's calling them to a life of obedience and suffering for the sake of Christ. So hear now God's holy inspired word from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Every identity that we have in life comes with a certain code of conduct. You live in America, and are an American citizen, you are called to obey the rules and laws of this nation. Children, you belong to a family, and I would imagine there are certain rules uh, that you have to obey and follow as members of that household. If you're married, you're called to a faithful and exclusive relationship with your wife or your husband. Whatever you do for work, I would imagine, entails certain performance and behavioral expectations that you need to follow. Well, the Philippians would have been very familiar with this principle, not only with their earthly callings, but especially with their unique uh, situation of being in Philippi. Philippi, as you may remember, was a Roman colony, and as such, they all had Roman citizenship. Philippi was, in some sense, a Rome away from Rome. And so they would have been expected to live a manner of life worthy of their Roman citizenship. In our passage, Paul is analogizing this principle by comparing it to the kingdom of God. 
Just as there's a certain code of conduct that's expected for our earthly callings, for our earthly citizenships, so too with our heavenly citizenship. By God's grace alone, we have been brought into God's kingdom. He is the king, as we just got done reading earlier in our liturgy, that he has rules and expectations for us as uh, his citizens, and we're called to live according to these rules. We're called to live in a manner worthy of this calling. In fact, if you look in your Bibles at verse 27, the phrase that's translated, let your manner of life be worthy of, in the original Greek is actually one word. And it could be literally translated as the proper conduct of a citizen. Paul's analogizing this, this unique situation of the Roman citizenship with their citizenship in the kingdom of God. But what is unique about our heavenly citizenship is that this citizenship cannot be revoked when we fail to live according to our code of conduct. You remember Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, this is why our catechism is structured guilt, grace, and gratitude. We only obey uh, gratefully after we are secure in the gospel. We have that secure citizenship. So this evening, I want us to focus our hearts and minds on the expected conduct for a citizen of God's kingdom. The expected conduct for a citizen of God's kingdom. And Paul will be giving us two duties and a word of comfort. Two duties and a word of comfort. So first, he'll call us to stand firm in unity. Then he'll call us to strive for the faith. And then he'll give us comfort in our suffering. He calls to stand firm in unity, strive for the faith, the word of comfort in our sufferings. So first, Paul says that, says that the Philippians need to stand firm in unity. Stand firm in unity. Please look with me in your Bibles at verse 27. The Apostle Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Apostle Paul does not want the Philippians' unity to be conditioned upon his presence. You can about imagine that Paul's presence would have been quite a motivating factor for the Philippians to have their act together. But Paul doesn't want that to be a motivating factor. Just like they shouldn't act like Roman citizens only when a high official from Rome is visiting, so too, they shouldn't just be acting like a citizen of God's kingdom because the Apostle Paul is present. He wants this to be their conduct every day of the week. Paul describes our unity, the church's unity, here as one spirit, one mind, side by side. One spirit, one mind, side by side. What Paul's referring to here is an all-encompassing unity. A unity that, that's based on a common confession or belief. A common ethic. An ethic that's found, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. And a common mission. We have this as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note 
that when Paul is referring and, I guess, giving this command to the Philippians, he's referring to their status and identity as members of God's kingdom, as members of the church. He is not referring to their lives in Philippi or their status as Roman citizens. Again, that's the analogy. But he's not, this command isn't directed to them as Roman citizens. Paul clearly recognizes that God is king over the universe, but that he rules his kingdom in a twofold manner. That the common kingdom consists of the institutions of this world for the Philippians, it would have been the Roman Empire, it would have been a, according to the Roman citizenship, their life in which they interact with unbelievers. And Paul is saying that according to your status and identity as citizens of God's kingdom, I want you to be unified. Paul clearly is not expecting the Philippians to be of one mind, of one spirit, when it comes to their view on Roman law and policy, their citizenship in the Roman Empire. I once heard a story from one of my professors who was telling, who was telling a story about one of his pastor friends. I think it illustrates his point point well. Uh, this pastor friend was, this was decades ago, and he was, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, he was in his office. It was about 15 minutes before uh, the church started. He looks out his window, and he sees these two longtime members, these two gentlemen. And they were in a heated argument, and it looked like it was about to turn physical. And the deacon runs out, concerned. I mean, it was 10, minute, 10 15 minutes before, breaks it up. And they all come in, and the pastor asks this deacon, like, what was going on? And, and the deacon was like, well, you know, they were started talking about some issue, some political issue, and they had different views, and... You know, things just escalated. And this church had the, had the practice of taking the communion weekly. And they would all stand in a circle together and take the elements as, together as a pastor would administer it. And this pastor said what was so beautiful is when they got to that point in the service, he looks out and he sees these two gentlemen, which about an hour and a half ago were about to throw punches, holding hands together, taking the supper. And he used this as a, as, a, as a story to illustrate the unity of the church. That outside, you know, outside these walls, according to our, our place in this world, we, we will have different opinions and, and views like the Philippians, I'm sure, had. But when it comes to the unity of the church, we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ of one mind and one spirit. I think for us today, obviously there's many, many things going on in our, in our current cultural context, in our country. We can, we should have opinions, convictions of what's going on. Paul himself calls us to engage in this world. I think Paul would want us to remember that we're first and foremost not members of a political party, but we're first and foremost members of God's kingdom. We're members of the church of Jesus Christ. And as such, we are of one mind, one spirit, because we have a common confession, a common ethic. A common unity. And Jesus says in John 17, it's this that's going to be a witness to this watching world. It's the church's unity in their common confession that speaks loudly to who he is and what he came to do for us. So boys and girls, you know, it's your place in the church 
your membership in the church, that transcends the fact that you live in America, even transcends the fact or the, the reality of your place in your natural family. In fact, Jesus says that of those three scenarios, your earthly citizenship, your place in your natural family, and your membership in the church, is only your membership in the church that will carry on into the new creation. And just as you're called to get along with your brothers and sisters, Paul says you, know, you need to seek unity, seek to get along with people in your church family. Well, a healthy kingdom, of course, needs to be unified, but it also needs to have a citizenry that knows and is able to defend their constitution. So too in God's kingdom. And Paul here calls us to strive for the faith of the gospel. We're called to strive for the faith of the gospel. Paul here calls us. He says we're called to strive. Now this word strive it could also be rendered contend. You may think of Jude 3, where Jude uh, calls us all to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now, in the original context, there were false teachers in Philippi who were seeking to pervert the gospel, adding requirements to the basic message of what Jesus has done. You not only need to believe, but you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the ceremonial law. You need to obey this, this law of God in order to be accepted before God. And Paul's saying, well, don't give in. Strive for that faith that you've received from me. Fight for it. Notice that Paul says, the faith. That definite article is important. He says, the faith. Now, the word faith can have a couple of meanings in, in, in the New Testament. Faith can be re referring to our subjective faith, our personal apprehension of Christ and the gospel. But faith can also have an objective reference, referring to the content of Christianity. And Paul here is using faith in the latter meaning, the content of Christianity, the content of our subjective faith. So what is the Christian faith that for the Philippians? Well, for the Philippians, it would have been the Old Testament, clearly, and then... This letter, whatever other New Testament letters and, and Gospels would have been circulating at that time. Also, creedal-like statements that the early church used to summarize the teaching of Scripture. What does the Christian faith look like for us 2,000 years later? Well, of course it looks like the Bible, the closed canon of Scripture. It also includes the very best teaching of the church that's been encompassed for us in the creeds and the confessions that have been handed down to us. These, of course, are secondary statements. They help us understand what the Bible is saying. But they're also part of the Christian faith. You know, Paul says, commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 to hold fast to the pattern of sound words. That's the basis for the church summarizing Scripture in, in creeds and confessions. The temptation, I think, though, for all churches is to have a nominal relationship to the Christian faith. Liberal churches not only do this with the creeds and confessions, but they do this with the very text of Scripture. It's on the books, but it doesn't really have any authority or um, um, it doesn't affect the life of the individual Christian or, or the church. And conservatives might not do this with the Bible, but we tend to do this with our creeds and confessions. 
Some churches don't have them. Other churches, they might have them, but again, they're relegated to the, the website or the, book, the, um, the bookshelf in the church library. It's important to know, though, that these, these are not just documents that should be left on the shelf. These are part of who we are. They're part of our identity. The fact that we believe that God is one God existing in three persons is very important. The fact that we confess that Christ is one person in two natures, we say that's necessary for our salvation. The fact that we say that Jesus didn't come to this earth just to make salvation possible, but actually accomplish something, that's why we're here right now. The fact that we say that the Bible regulates worship and not whatever's popular in pop culture, that's why our liturgy is the way it's structured for us in this moment. These things need to affect the very life of the church. They're a part of who we are. So it's very important that we know our faith. In order to contend for it, we need to first know our faith. Again, according to that analogy that Paul is using here in our text, just as the Philippians as Roman citizens would have, would have been expected to know Roman law and culture and history, so too, according to their citizenship in God's kingdom, he wants them to know, know their faith in order to contend for it. And this is precisely why in our liturgy, we have so much Bible. If you just look at your liturgy and consider for a moment how much Bible is, is in our liturgy, it's, it's quite astounding. We preach the Bible, we hear the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we confess the Bible, summarize in our creeds and confessions. The Bible is, is in, our, in, our, in our liturgy through and through. But this is also why we give such uh, big attention to our catechism instruction. We have a, uh, a time in our liturgy for catechetical instruction. That's why we encourage catechesis. So boys and girls, one way in which you can strive for the faith, you can contend for the faith, is by learning your catechism. It probably seems quite dull at this point in life, but I, I would imagine in years from now, I know in years from now, you're going to be quite thankful that you've learned, learned your catechism. But we need to know the faith to contend for the faith. You know, Peter says a similar statement when he says that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. When we think about the faith, the Christian faith that's been handed down to us in the scriptures, and then more specifically the Reformed understanding of scripture, I think we often recognize it is a treasure chest. Rather than leading to arrogance, this should lead us to have a, a desire and excitement to have more and more people dipping into this treasure chest. There are many, many people today who have come to salvation in Christ but the Bible still seems so foreign. It seems like a bunch of disparate books bound together. And it's our, our Christian faith, the faith that's been handed down to us, that helps unlock the real meaning of Scripture, that Christ is on every page. I mean, even, it's sad even to say in our, in our current climate that there are people who are confused on what the gospel is. Again, we have those answers. We have the freeness of the gospel, but we also have and we confess our duty to God's law. It should make us excited, excited to strive together as a church plant to, uh, for this faith of the gospel, this faith of the gospel that has been handed down to us. 
Well, as the Philippians seek to be unified, as they seek to contend for this faith that, that the Apostle Paul has handed down to them, Paul knows that there's going to be hardship, suffering, trials, tribulations. And so he's wanting to end with a word of comfort, a word of comfort in the midst of their suffering. Here we'll be considering verses 28 through 30, so a comfort in suffering. As I mentioned, there were false teachers in Philippi. These may be the opponents that Paul is referring to here, or they may be just other people in the city. We don't really know who they were, but that doesn't really matter. We know that they were inflicting suffering. And so for us, uh, these opponents in our lives, it might not be people, it's anything that inflicts suffering. Whether that be depression, anxiety, death, a diagnosis, it might be people. Anything that, that inflicts suffering, I think, would fall into the category of these opponents. These opponents are inflicting suffering. And Paul tells them, don't be frightened. When these opponents are coming and inflicting you, don't be frightened. This word that Paul uses, do not be frightened, it's used um, outside of the New Testament in a couple of, of times to refer to a, a horse that's been spooked and starts stampeding. He's saying, don't be spooked. Don't be like a horse that's about to stampede when these opponents come. And when you read this, this, this statement, do not be frightened, it almost comes across to us like a command. Like, do not be frightened. But this isn't so much a command as a word of comfort. You know, it's not like God telling us, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Those are things that are explicitly sin that we should never be doing. But the Bible doesn't usually talk about fear in the sin category. Usually fear has to do with our frailty and our weakness. Like your child running into your room when they're, when they're scared uh, uh, by a thunderstorm. You don't, your first response, I'm sure, isn't to rebuke them, but to comfort them. Now our response to fear, that's usually where sin comes in. But fear itself is usually because of our frailty and our weakness. And so... Our Lord, through Paul, is wanting to comfort us in the midst of things that might bring fear into our life. So what is this comfort that we receive? Well, in verse 28, Paul says that suffering is a sign of our salvation. Suffering is a sign of our salvation. Now, this seems a bit counterintuitive. Suffering, sign of salvation. Well, Paul says a similar statement in verse 29 as he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now this word grant is actually, uh, could almost be rendered gift, a gracious gift or bestowal. It's used other places to refer to uh, a gift or an award that's given to a civic official. It's kind of bestowing of an honorarium or, or gift. Faith, we get that, right? That faith is a gift. But suffering, suffering gift, suffering sign of our salvation. What does Paul, what does Paul mean by this? Well, I'd like to offer two brief responses to uh, Paul's teaching about suffering. Suffering as a sign of salvation, suffering as a gift. First, I think Paul wants us to know that our suffering is not a curse. Our suffering is not a curse. This is a striking statement in light of the Old Testament. When you read about the, the history of Israel, and when bad things happen to Israel, 
The crops fail, the barns are empty, the cattle die, the enemies are on the doorstep, the women are barren. Why is that usually? It was usually because of their sin and disobedience. And that should have been expected. That would not have been a surprise in the nation of Israel. You read Deuteronomy 28, and God's very clear that when you obey, this will happen, and when you disobey, this will happen. So for Israel, these bad things happening to them was very much a curse from God. But this curse was at an earthly level. It wasn't, it wasn't that God was cursing them eternally. Well, Paul tells us that that Mosaic covenant, especially the terms of that covenant, it was a pedagogue unto Christ. It was meant to be like a tutor, like a, a mean teacher that slaps your wrist when you get the math answer wrong. It's only for a time, Paul says. And when Christ has come, there's no more need for those curses. So now in the new covenant, barrenness is no longer a curse. When bad things happen to us, it's not because we're under God's curse. I think we all, at some point in our life, have thought that. When something bad happens, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve God's displeasure? Paul's wanting us to know that the sufferings and tribulations and trials is not God's curse upon your life. And second, these statements teach us the paradoxical nature of the Bible. The paradoxical nature of the Bible. Boys and girls, a paradox is a statement that contains two ideas that at first reading don't seem to make sense. And sometimes, as you consider it more, um, they seem to make um, some, some logical sense. For example, let's say your friend comes to you and says, I just saw a cat three times the size of my dog. You'd be like, wait, that doesn't make sense. The cat is not bigger than a dog. But then you ask a few more questions, and you're like, and your friend says that they just went to the zoo and they saw a tiger. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. So Paul here, on first note, it seems paradoxical. Suffering, salvation, suffering, gift, how, how, those two shouldn't belong in the same sentence. But I think we need to consider this a few more moments. What was the greatest act of suffering in human history? It was Jesus' death on the cross. We're not just, we didn't just suffer in an earthly perspective. We bore the very wrath of God. The greatest act of suffering, the cross of Christ. But at the same time, what was the greatest gift in human history? The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ at the same time, the greatest suffering and the greatest gift. If God can turn the greatest atrocity in human history for good, why can't he do the same in our lives? The Bible would seem to tell us that for those of us who are united to Christ by faith, blessing is found in the path of suffering. Those two go hand in hand. I think too often we think that God's blessing must conform to the expectations of an affluent Western society. It's important to know, I'm not saying that God's blessings in earthly perspective, the good things that he, common blessings that he pours out on our life are not his blessings, they are. James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from God. But oftentimes we think that's the only mode of blessing from God. That the afflictions, the hardships of life can't also be 
in some way turned for blessing and as a gift. What I'm describing here is what Martin Luther actually described as the theology of the cross. And he came to this, this, this understanding very early on in his journey to the Reformation. And what, he's, what he talked about is that God accomplishes his purposes in ways that go against the expectations of this world. God accomplishes his purposes in ways that goes against the expectations of this world. And if you think about it, it's really true in, every, in, in, most, in most aspects of our theology. When we think about God's power in the church, should we think of it in terms of earthly significance, cultural dominance, or the foolishness of the cross? When we think of God's leaders, right, the ministers and elders of his churches, do we think of positions of wealth and prestige or servants of all? And here, Paul is saying, when we think of God's blessings and gifts, do we just think of those things which conform to an affluent American society, or do we also think of hardships and suffering? I think all too often our expectations towards God comes from our life in, in our culture. We have to realize the church is a very countercultural institution. And God does not operate in ways that accord with the expectations of this world. Well, very briefly, you may wonder, well, okay, how is it a gift? So I think it's important to know the paradox of Scripture, not be surprised by them. But how is it a gift? As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it is a mystery. And we have to be content with the mystery. We shouldn't pry too, too deeply into the, the, the hidden ways of God. We know that God works all things for good, but it's like that tapestry that I mentioned a few weeks ago. We only see one side of this life. It's only in the life to come that we're going to, it's going to flip. And we're going to see uh, the right side of the tapestry. But I do think one of the ways in which, which the tribulations of this life are indeed um, a gift is that it, God uses it to grow us, to grow us in, in our faith. During seminary, I did an internship in eastern Washington. And I quickly realized that eastern Washington is wine country. And people in eastern Washington like wine. I remember I was having a discussion with someone uh, in the church about growing grapes and, and the, the whole business. And I remember asking, what makes a good wine grape? And he said, well, a good wine grape needs to have a little bit of, of struggle uh, from the elements, whether it be drought or the sun or 100 plus degrees weather. These have a little bit of struggle, and if it gets over that struggle, it's going to be a great wine grape. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's a great illustration about our faith. That I think the, the difficulties of this life do grow us. This is what Peter says, that it tests our faith, it tries our faith, and we have the guarantee that we will, we will overcome. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, but it does, it does grow us. We get into situations where really the only place we can turn is to God, and we see him not... Uh, see his promises tested and proven in our lives. And it grows us. strengthens us. So Paul here wants us to be comforted. That when the hardships come, you are not under a curse. You are not under a curse. And if God can turn the greatest atrocity in human history for good, how can he not do the same in our lives? So brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, we do indeed have a great honor of being called citizens of the kingdom of God. We are called here in our passage to live lives 
in a manner worthy of this high calling and status. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for making us uh, your citizens uh, by your free, unmerited grace alone. We ask that you would comfort us, comfort us that you are indeed our almighty God and faithful Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let us now respond by standing and singing about the glories of, of Zion, this heavenly kingdom uh, to which we belong. So please turn to 403, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. 403, stanzas 1, 2, and 4.